seated. We have two cases for argument this morning, uh, Printcraft versus Optimal Recovery and Adams versus the State of Minnesota. We'll take Printcraft first. Ms. Erbaum, you've reserved 15 minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. May it please the court. The basic tenant of work comp law requires that there be an injured employee under the act to be entitled for benefits. In this case, we had two prongs of litigation uh, that were combined for one hearing. We had completely denied claims involving CRPS in all four extremities, low back pain, SI joint pain, headaches, insomnia, upper extremity pain, memory, cognitive, dis issue, cognitive issues, and, and so forth, all of which had been denied. Denial in work comp means primary liability was completely denied. The employer and insurer never admitted any type of condition related to any of those ailments. That denial of liability was maintained throughout the litigation. The employer and insurer prevailed on those issues and the underlying compensation judge determined that none of those conditions were work-related. There was one admitted claim in this injury, or in this litigation, which was an orthopedic ankle strain sprain involving the left ankle. There was Counsel, a I'd like to ask you about that because you stopped paying the QRC in, um uh, September 6th, around there, I believe, of 2016. And yet, as I understood the record then, you had admitted the left ankle claim and there was some physical therapy going on. Am I mistaken about that? Uh, actually, um, in two, two points, you're correct, and in, in some points, you're incorrect. We did admit a left ankle strain sprain. Um, we did approve a very specific um, ankle rehabilitation program. However, I think if you look at my reply brief on specifically pages seven to eight, you'll see a very detailed itemized listing of the services that the QRC actually performed between um, September 16 and April 17, which showed that the medical management done at that time had nothing to do with that one admitted ankle therapy program. And so we stopped pain, but in essence, what we did really do was just refuse to pay rehab on the denied conditions. So that's why I kind of had to outline for you that there were a lot of denied conditions here and only one admitted yeah, condition because yes, it's get important. That. I, I totally get that, but why didn't you file a rehab request for assistance then? I mean, In when September? It yeah, when it well, became apparent um, or even when you filed the, what is it called, the notice of annoyed or whatever. Um, isn't it usual to file those two together? Um, because that's not very burdensome and you get a hearing before an administrative person quite quickly. Well, you would think that um, except for when you have a denied claim, you actually don't get a conference. So in order to stop pain in September, um, well, frankly, when you file a rehab request on a denied claim, nothing happens. Um, all that happens is it gets consolidated over with the um, matters that are pending at OAH, the Office of Administrative Hearings, for one hearing before the judge, which is actually what happened in this case. And the rehab response that was filed by the employee's attorney actually said that they can't file a rehab request and get a hearing before the Department of Labor and Industry because they've denied primary liability on the body parts. I finally did file the rehab request in April just because the QRC had mentioned that she felt um, she'd close her file if we filed one, but we all know that didn't happen. Um, so I guess, you know, the answer to your question, why wasn't one filed earlier? We didn't need to file one because we were just denying liability on the ongoing claims. There's no requirement to file one um, in order to not pay on a disputed claim. Um, 
we didn't start denying the ankle until after we obtained our IME from Dr. Mark Friedland. And in November of um, We actually got his IME report, I think his report was Exhibit 20, which is, um, his report's dated January 9 of 2017. And it was his report that provided the retroactive date that said this ankle claim actually resolved back in April 2016. And so it was not until we got that IME report that we realized we had been overpaying benefits essentially from April 20th, 2016 up until that date in January 17. and, and, and so that happens a lot in workers' compensation where you're paying, you admit the claim, you pay, and then an independent medical examination doctor takes a look at the facts, and then you retroactively go back and say, okay, we, we shouldn't have been paying all this time. We had a temporary injury that resolved. But and counsel, counsel I, I, I'm confused. Sure. If, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying it wasn't until you got this report in 2017, this IME report, that you realized Printcraft had been overpaying. On the ankle claim. Okay. On, on the, the left ankle strain sprain. Dr. Friedland well, is an orthopedic right. doctor. He was examining for the ankle condition, which we had admitted. We had always maintained a denial on all those other ailments from the get-go. Okay. I, I guess what I'm still a little bit confused about is mm-hmm. it's clear to me from looking at the QRC's uh, disposition reports. I mean, I have their name wrong, but the reports that she's writing uh, all along from the from 2016 on that, I mean, there are many, many notes in there, as you say in your brief, where she acknowledges that there is a dispute ongoing um, about all of the other ailments uh, that he's now claiming and the services that she's providing for those for those services, for those ailments. So I guess my point is similar to Justice Chudish's, which is you clearly knew that you were paying for something. You, your client, were paying for something that you didn't think you should be paying for, these services related to all of these other ailments that he was claiming. What's the point then of subdivision 8 of the statute or the other rules that that are attached to it that say when you get those rehabilitation uh, reports, you, you, the employer, have an obligation to say something if you disagree. And if you don't do that, you essentially admit that these plans are appropriate. And so that's what I'm confused about is how that all works together because you clearly did object. I mean, that, you know, she says that in, in her progress notes. So help me figure figure that out. Sure. I think what can be sometimes confusing to those who don't have to practice and work comp on a daily basis is that, um, you know, we, we have a very imperfect system and the pieces don't always mesh together just right. Okay. So what you have here is, is a rehab system where... Um, you know, those provisions might work really great when all you have is an admitted injury and you're filing a rehab request to terminate the rehab plan based on some reason as listed in subdivision eight, which is there's a, you know, a physical, uh, there's only five reasons there under subdivision eight that you're referring to in, in the rehab rule. Well, we weren't arguing any of those. We, were, we weren't arguing. Well, but, the, but the rehab form itself, has has a lot of boxes you can check. Right. One of them is other. Right. And the employer could have easily checked other and said, yep, we're paying for the ankle injury. We've admitted liability as to that. But this concussion stuff and this regional pain syndrome and the right arm and the left yep. arm and all the other stuff that you contested, we don't agree with that. Correct. And in fact, it seems to me that that's what the rules envision um, because as your opponent notes, there are several provisions in the rule that say you can go in for an alteration. You can go in for a modification to say yes to ankle, no to concussion. And all of those same provisions also specifically indicate that none of those provisions um, 
prohibit an employer and insurer from later arguing that the services were not reasonable or necessary. So how does that work together then? Exactly. That's why I'm Maybe that's part of the imperfect, I mean. Right. That's kind of what I'm trying to get to is, you know, it it seems real easy. Oh, the employer and insurer can just file a rehab request. Well, fine. I did on April 7th. And this QRC continued to provide the exact same services for a whole nother year while we were waiting for our hearing I guess what I'm saying, the rule allows you to step in at a much earlier date. You you could, but you're not required to because at any time... But if if you're you're grumping the way these progress notes indicate the employer is grumping about all of the additional services, we're not paying. You're saying in emails and this and that, we're not paying, we're not paying, we're not paying, we're not paying. There's a process to, to, to cut that off. Right, but I think what you have to understand is that that process is very time-consuming and that especially... Look what in happened case, in, in the absence of right. doing it. But, but in this case, we had three IMEs that had to take place in order to be able to dispute my position, which was my client's position was none of this is work-related. Well, you don't just file a rehab request on day one and say none of this is work-related without, without evidence. So, so in this case, three IMEs were completed. That took a lot of time. The case was continued for many, many times once the rehab request actually ended up being consolidated and we had the hearing. So again, I think, um, and, and, and I would Counsel, I'd also a, point out. Oh, let, let me ask a big picture question, and I sure. don't mean to cut you off. And you want, if you want to finish that off when you, and then answer my question, that's fine. But, um, you know, the big picture question for me is the fact that this employee was no longer an injured employee. And I wonder if you could talk about the significance of that. And does, does that actually kind of short circuit all of this other conversation? Well, and that's kind of the key point. So to conclude Justice Hudson's question, you also need to look at um, 5220.0510 subdivision A, 7A, for, for denial of liability. And you'll see right in there, when you have a denial of liability, Justice, it, it specifically indicates that all we have to do is say that we're denying the claim. It doesn't say we have to file a rehabilitation request. What you're saying is an option. We could, but we can also, if we're denying liability, we can go under um, 5220.0510 subdivision A, 7A, which is um, insurer's denial of liability. And we can just indicate we're denying liability and we're not paying. And then what the case law says is the QRC has a choice. She gets to withdraw and the file can go to the Department of Labor and Industry Vocational Rehabilitation Unit, which provide services on denied claims, or the QRC can continue providing the services at her own peril, and then if the employee wins on the claim, then the QRC is paid. Here, the employee lost on all his claims, so that's why the QRC wasn't paid. And the timing of when the rehab request was was or was not filed, or when it could have been filed, or could it have been filed earlier, is all completely irrelevant. So I hope that answers your question. Moving on to your question, sir. Um, That's exactly the point. I mean, 176.102, which I think you see in my brief, requires in its first instance that rehab vocational rehabilitation services can only be provided to injured employees. So in this case, an injured employee is required. A QRC can only provide rehab services under 176.102 and all of the corresponding rehab rules if you have an injured employee. Now in work comp, it happens all the time that you start out at a hearing with an injured employee or an allegedly injured employee. And by the time you get through with your hearing, a judge who's learned in the workers' compensation law then tells us, the parties, whether that employee really was an injured worker within the work comp system or not. And here, Judge Marshall issued a decision that the employee 
A did not have all of the 14 or 15 other conditions that he claimed. Those either did not exist or were not work-related. And by the way, that his ankle injury that we had admitted, he agreed with our IME doctor, independent medical examination doctor, that that injury to the left ankle had resolved. Now, of course, we didn't find out it resolved, unfortunately, until almost a year and a half after um, all of this litigation had started for reasons that, um, you know, there were a lot of continuances. There was a couple different employees, attorneys uh, that handled the claim and thus forth. So I think um, once a judge makes that determination that there is no injury, then really all of this is academic. Um, all of the discussion on 102 and Council. which rule applies is academic. Sorry for interrupting. Sure. Um, and I understand that argument, but I am, I am puzzled about what to do about Halverson. Because in Halverson, there was an employee who was no, the, the company said he was no longer a qualified employee. Kind right. of a similar argument. Oh, no, no, no. You don't that think so? That is so different. Because okay, that's so what I want you are, to help me with. Because yeah. I, I feel like Halverson is setting out a process that has to be followed. Right. Um, and and like under that process, the earliest that that a judge or somebody said this guy's no longer injured was in January of 2017 when you had the administrative conference. Yeah. So so, so tell me how Halverson is yeah, different because yeah, this, this troubles me. What's really good is the fact that my firm handled Halverson too, so I have a really good knowledge of the facts because I actually was the attorney who tried Halverson the very first time, which was like 10 years ago before the trial judge. So that's good that you asked that. But in the Halverson case, Ms. Halverson was deemed to have a permanent injury with permanent restrictions. So when we tried that case the first time, we lost in front of the comp judge. And the comp judge said, no, Miss Halverson has been left with a permanent disability for her work injury. She's left with residuals. She is still an injured employee, right? So because she's still an injured employee, then you have to go on with the, with the statute. You have to go to 176.102. You have to go to 5220.05.110. You have to follow all those rules and regulations because she's still an injured employee under the statute. And when you're deemed to be a permanent, you have a permanent injury with permanent restrictions, then Halverson makes sense in, in that scenario. But, but counsel, where, Here, no. where, where I, I, I had the same concerns with Halverson. Where in the opinion, though, do we make any of the distinctions that you're talking about? Because when I read Halverson, it maybe I'm reading it more broadly, but I do read it more broadly to say that when you have an injured employee, and we can debate about whether he was injured or not, but, but, but the point was, the court said, there is a process, and it's an important process in terms of, of the procedural protections that are afforded to employees so that their services are not terminated uh, prematurely or inappropriately. And so... Am right. I reading and, it? I guess you would say I'm reading that too broadly. Yeah, I, I'm looking I, I, for something in the case that says what you just said. Okay. The the and and you know, unfortunately, Halverson has is completely different from Mr. Ewing's case because Mr. You think it's Ewing, just a distinction. We it's factually different, is how we would well, you, no, you're telling us it, to it's, distinguish. It's not just factually different. It's Mr. Ewing has already been declared not to be an injured employee. So you started your question with, well, in Miss Halverson's case, we had an injured employee. You said it yourself. You use yes. that phrase. Yes. And then over here, Justice indicated, well, there's a qualified employee issue. Okay, well, qualified employee and whether someone is or isn't a qualified employee, that's the second step, okay? So you first have to decide if you even have an injured employee under the statute. Because once, if you're not an injured employee under the statute, the Work Comp Act doesn't apply to you. Otherwise, a QRC could just walk in here and say, well, I'm a QRC. Justice Hudson, and you don't have a work injury and you're not an employee under the statute, but I'm going to provide services for you and then I'm going to ask your employer to pay. Um, you're not an injured worker under the statute. You're not. 
because you don't have a work injury. You haven't been declared to have permanent restrictions like Julie Halverson. You haven't been determined to have a permanent work injury. So the statute applied tell, tell to Ms. Halverson. What is the difference? Is the term injured employee defined? I know qualified employee is. Well, what, injured what are, employee the is the, to have an injury under the statute, there's a definition um, that's right in the statute for what an injured employee is. Uh, you have to have a work injury. Here, it was judicially determined that he did not have a work injury back to April. So it's a retroactive determination that there's but no what, injury. what happens with your admission that he did? Everybody agrees he did have a work injury. Right. He was an injured employee for a while. And then what <laughs> troubles me is I, I think you have to wait to, until you said it yourself, until a comp judge or somebody says, no, this person isn't injured anymore. And yep. the first that that happened in this case, unless I'm wrong, and you can correct me, I think was in January when you had that administrative conference and the, the judge there said, nope, you know, your, your ankle injury resolved. Right, and that is so the first time. So why wouldn't you have to pay that. until that point in time? Well, because our statute allows for retroactive for ankle denials. Injury. It, it allows for it. Our entire Work Compact allows for a retroactive denial. It, it, the, and, and you're going to see in, in many of the cases that I've cited that exact point. Um, and you're going to see this court. Um, you know, already determined Can some I of this. Can I just clarify? So, sure. If the if stuff happening after September of 2016, even through April of 2017, had been an ankle injury related to the ankle injury, you would have paid for that. Well, we were paying. We I think we paid. Um, we paid for services from the time she started in April through September, and that some of that was related to the ankle. Some of it was probably qu questionable, but we were we paid in, until September. Um, but after well, that, um, well, she, you wouldn't have you, paid for it because look, it ended in April of 2016. We, well, but we didn't know the injury. No, had I, ended. I'm just. I'm, I, yeah. I get the stuff before okay. September is kind of <laughs> you. You paid it, and you're not going to fight about it. Right. Well, That's, you know, there's but, no provision for us to try to get it back. You yeah. know, I wish I could, but so the question that's is, gone. after September, mm -hmm. had it been related to the ankle, you probably would have continued to pay until that decision. Right. If there had been specific, I think if there had been anything specific related to the ankle, we, we probably would have continued to pay at least up until the time of that January um, conference when we had a determination that the ankle injury had resolved. But, but your um, argument is you d wouldn't have to pay that anyway because in April of 2016, the ankle injury had resolved. Had resolved. We found out later. And that's pretty much like the Coutts v. Sutherland case where it just was determined so, so the once risk, an injury's done, you're done. So the risk, so the QRC under our system in some sense takes the risk that they're sometimes going to provide services that they won't be paid for. Right. And I think that that's already, that's not new. Uh, I mean, that, that isn't a new concept. I mean, that concept's been outlined in numerous cases where this court, as I, and I think the Work Comp Court of Appeals specifically, um, has stated that that's a well-known tenant of our Work Comp system, which is that if a QRC chooses to continue to provide services in the face of a denial, in the face of some kind of of notice, which in this case, it just is written notice. It's not a rehab um, request. That's not what's required. Counsel, but your red light's on, but I think Justice Hudson has sure. a question before you. I, I, can I just finish sure. your question? Sure. Um, that essentially there's no rehab request requirement, as if, but if the QRC decides to provide services, when she's given an out, so it's not like she's forced to continue to provide the services, but if she does, she does do so at her own peril. And that's the exact language that courts have used. She is providing the services at her own peril. It's no different, sir, than a doctor who provides a fusion surgery to an injured worker, and, and it could be a $150,000 medical bill, and he provides that surgery in good faith, okay? And then we go to a hearing, and a comp judge says that fusion surgery was not reasonable or necessary, and then that doctor doesn't get paid his $150,000 medical bill because work comp doesn't owe it. Okay, okay so we got that point. There's Justice a Hudson. lot there. 
Yep, and Justice Hudson, I'm sorry. I, I just want to go back to Justice Anderson's sort of big picture um, question, which is, as I understand your, your basic point, is that QRCs are only entitled to reimbursement for services that were determined to be reasonable and necessary. And if those services were determined to not be reasonable and necessary, even if that's long after the fact, which often happens, then the employer is not liable for those services. And so in, in your view, it's not, we don't even get to the statute per se. It's not about notice, uh, whether you have to give it or when you give it. It's simply about, and you're relying on, it looks like a, you know, a fairly long line of cases that say, if these services were not reasonable and necessary, that's the end of the game. Right, I get it. That's right. And that's that, position, seems, that seems so simple. And I understand your desire to make it more complex than it has to be. But that's desire is not to make it more <laughs> complex. My desire is to get the law right and to make but sure we do what we're I think, supposed to do. I think what so. you just said is exactly right. If, if the injury's resolved, it's done. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be any more difficult than that. And I understand the concern about Halverson, but Julie Halverson had a permanent injury. Therefore, she's always in the work comp system. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. You answered my okay. question. Thank you, counsel. You have 15 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Mr. Borkin. May it please the court, counsel, good morning. I, I guess I want to start with addressing some questions that were asked of Ms. Erbaum earlier, because it, it seems to me that the crux of her argument is whether or not the employee was an injured employee. And I want to direct you back to that rule, Minnesota rule, and it's a complicated one, um, Minnesota rule 5220.0510 subpart 7AA. Um, I don't know who numbers those statutes, but um, that says that um, if somebody's an injured, you have to be an injured employee, um, but it also says that denying liability for an injury for which services are being provided um, needs to take place. And the services that were being provided were for the admitted injury, were for the admitted ankle. And so you need to file a denial or you need to put you need to give written notice of the denial. Well, but counsel, the services that were provided went far beyond for the admitted ankle injury. It's, it's very clear from your client's progress notes that she was providing services on a wide range of things. Right. And it just, it kept, it kept continuing. I mean, as she filed plan amendments, more stuff got, got added. But now, in all fairness, it looks like she was doing that because some of the treating physicians were saying, he has these conditions, or at least we need to investigate that. But I don't think it's accurate to say that she was simply providing services for the ankle. No, she was providing services for consequential injuries to the admitted ankle. But counsel, but didn't the notes also... is a consequential... Well, never mind. Don't the notes also reflect that um, your client was aware that there was a dispute over the services that were being provided, or the length of them? She was aware that there were... No, because a but they repeatedly say that there's litigation and that the that the employer doesn't agree with the rehab. I mean, those were in the notes repeatedly. But a QRC cannot um, alter her services based on what an employer tells her. She can only stop providing services at the direction of the Department of Labor and Industries Commissioner or at the direction of a compensation judge. She cannot rely on the word of the employer to discontinue services because her, she's a neutral party. Her, and how does that weigh in favor of your notice argument? Because she has to be given notice um, via a written rehab request. The statute requires that written notice must be given, formal notice must be given. And it has to take in the form of a rehab request. Um, and that wasn't done. The statute clearly requires it. It says, upon request, 176.102 subdivision 8. 
And you have to give notice for well, your seat. that sounds like it's optional, as Ms. Urbaum says, upon request. I don't see anything in the statute that says the employer shall do that. The shall language is in the rules. It's in Minnesota Rule 5220.0410, subpart 2. It says an employer has 15 days to object to a rehab plan amendment. That was never done. Council, let me, before we get there, and I, I share your concerns about that, and you're talking about in subdivision 2B and 2D and all of that, but, but isn't there sort of this broader question that Justice Anderson started out with, which is when you look at starting with counts and then, you know, numerous cases that follow counts, the Court of Appeals seems pretty clear that, as Ms. Erbaum says, it's not really about notice. It's about whether the services that were provided were reasonable and necessary. And here, the comp judge made a finding that after April of 2016, the ankle injury had resolved and all the rest were unnecessary. And nobody appealed that finding, nor did anybody appeal, but in particular you, you your client, nor did anyone appeal um, the finding ultimately that there was no primary liability for all the other stuff. So what do we do about that long line of workers' comp cases that say if they're not injured, if, if these services are not reasonable and necessary, that it, it, it ends there? You don't, that argument is based on a presupposition that a QRC's benefits are derivative from the employees, or a QRC's entitlement to services are derivative from the employees, and they're not. So you don't have to go into that line of cases. You, so. What's your best statutory authority for why the QRC has independent rights? Well, the QRC's uh, services and rights are set out by 176.102, and they're set out by the rules, Minnesota Rule 5220. Um, they have separate obligations. They have separate licensure requirements. We have a separate building for dealing with these disputes. Um, their, their services are independent of the employee, and they cannot— How can they possibly be independent? Well, let me just—let me go back to my question. Uh, if the employee isn't injured— well, or if the employee has injury has resolved, why doesn't that just end it? I mean, I mean, you're suggesting there have to be notices given and all this. Why? The the services are no longer required for the ankle because she doesn't know that. That determination isn't made until subsequently, and you can't. A QRC is not going to provide services if they don't know that those services are going to either be paid for or not paid for. Um, you can't. Counsel, a QRC what do you can't do about all the cases that say? When these issues are in dispute, a QRC provides those services at his or her own risk. And these, these, this claim was clearly in dispute. And it's <clears throat> crystal clear that your client knew that. Her own progress notes, re notes repeatedly say, employer is not paying for this, employer is not paying for that, employer wants to see an IME. And, I mean, on and on and on. So. She was on notice, and the case law makes it pretty clear that, that if you keep paying, if you keep providing services, you might not get paid if at the end of the day the comp judge says those services weren't reasonable or necessary. Yeah, and, and Justice Hudson, she was on notice that the, that the denied claims were being denied, but she was never on notice that the admitted ankle, those services were being denied. They had ample opportunity to give her notice that those admitted services were being denied. There were two rehab amendments. The plans. notice itself doesn't allow her to terminate the service, is, if, if I understood you correctly. No, it does. If they file a rehab request, the services stop until there's a judicial determination or a determination by a Department of Labor commissioner. Couldn't your client have also filed a rehab request? Is I, am I wrong about that? The rules seem to allow the QRC, which you would think she would do when she was getting, you know, clearly pressure from either you or somebody, because there's a lot of references to the employee's attorney saying, employee attorney says, I got to do, I got to go, I got to go. She could have filed a rehab request, too, to clarify, what to, to, to sort of, you know, separate out what's ankle injury, pool therapy now, and what's concussion or the other issues? Yes, she could have filed a rehab request if she knew that all of her bills were being denied. But the rules require, and this is where the shell language comes in, the rules say that she shall be paid for those service, 
those services if there's no objection to the rehab plan amendments. And this happened twice before they filed a rehab request where they didn't object to those uh, rehab plan amendments. And then when she submitted her bills, the statute allows for them to uh, deny certain bills or uh, line items as unreasonable or not necessary, and that was never done. So the QRC can't possibly know that all of her services are being denied and um, file a rehab request then to get those services paid for. Um, that's the problem with the lack of notice, is that a QRC could file a rehab request to get those bills paid if she had noticed that those bills were in dispute. Counsel, is it, to put it more bluntly, is it your client's position that she can get paid for providing services that at least in hindsight turned out to be unreasonable and unnecessary? Yeah. Okay. Um, you're, you're candid about that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, because, because, again, her services are not derivative from the employees. So even if the employees found to have a temporary injury that resolved by a certain date, um, the triggering effect to when her services are not payable is the rehab request. And they could file that rehab request at any time. And what's what's your, the basis for your theory that these QRC benefits are not really benefits to the employee? Because the QRC can be assigned by either party. I understand that, but it's for the benefit of the employee, isn't it? It's a, it's, yes. Well, it's for the benefit of all parties, though. Because the QRC provides more than just benefits to the employee. The medical management services that Ms. Brown were providing were to let the um, employer know about the employee's ability to return to work with the, with the date of injury employer. It allows the insurer to know um, what sort of treatment is being recommended, what sort, of, um, uh, what sort of restrictions the employee has. It is to the benefits of all parties, not just the injured worker. I noticed that your client went to a lot of medical appointments with um, the employee. Is that usual? Yes. I mean, any time when workability is being discussed, when an employee's workability might change, the QRC is usually going to be there. Or if there's like a new treatment that's being recommended that might affect the employee's workability or ability to return to work with the date of injury employer, the QRC is going to be there. That is normal. Um, and when you're talking about the QRC attending appointments that are, that are dealing with multiple issues, it's it's unfeasible or infeasible, I guess, for a QRC to go into the appointment, talk about the admitted injury, and then leave the appointment when they're talking about some of these other consequential claims. Like the denial to CRPS, CRPS isn't a body part, it's a diagnosis. And so, you know, they might be talking about the structure of the ankle, the doctor with the QRC, and then they're talking about the diagnosis of CRPS. Well, a QRC can't just cover her ears and, you know, or go in and out of an appointment when they're talking about these things. That's why we have this Bagul case that says that even if you're discussing multiple body parts, admitted or not admitted, QRC gets paid for all of those services because it's, um, it's impossible for a QRC to divide those services. I want to go back to the derivative question. What statute would you, would, what statute number, I, I'm not interested in the rule, what statute would specifically authorize the conclusion that uh, QRC services are independent of and not derivative of the employee's injury? I think that'd be 176.102. Um, In the specific language? Um, I don't have the specific language. Okay, I just, can get it. That's fine. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but Do you remember what subdivision in 176.102? Well, I think you go back to subdivision 8. Um, but um, there's a, there, there is a rule that says that the QRC is a neutral party. That's, uh, it's 5220.1801. Council, you said subdivision eight. Yeah. So there's language in there that talks about the QRC's rights being derivative. Well, that's more, it more goes it. to, it more goes to notice. Well, that's, but, that's different. I don't, I don't see anything about derivative rights. Yeah, that, subdivision eight is about plan modification. Mm -hmm. And so what, what in the theory of plan modification indicates that it's not derivative? Well, because, it because the QRC requires a separate notice to be, to be filed, notifying them that their services are being in dispute. It's separate from the notice that's filed to an to injured worker that their benefits are in dispute. If an injured worker's benefits are in dispute, a notice of intent to discontinue benefits has to be filed. And in this case, it was back in... Uh, I believe December of 2016 
And at those conferences, the court can expand the issues to include vocational rehabilitation benefits um, at the, uh, at the uh, request of both parties. And that wasn't Council, done in this. Subdivision 4 um, talks about the um, rehabilitation consultant and the employer's obligation to hire one under certain circumstances and all of that. So that, that provides other support for your, your position, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Justice. I don't have my computer in front of me. I don't have the statute in front of me. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, though, um, the Halverson case. Do you, um, I assume you don't agree that it's distinguishable. So tell me why I shouldn't worry about it. Um, well, I, yes, Justice Tuchich, I agree that the, the Halverson case is not distinguishable. And I think the court has addressed this issue in Halverson. Specifically, they noted, or this court noted that there's nothing absurd about creating a procedural framework for the modification of a rehab plan particularly one that allows the parties to litigate the question of termination and guards against the premature or erroneous termination of a recipient's rehab benefits. So I do believe this issue was discussed in But, but counsel, in terms of absurdity, isn't it absurd to expect employers to pay for services that have nothing to do with the injury at hand? Um, no, I don't think it's absurd to... I think it would, yes, it's absurd to have an employer pay for services that aren't related, but you have to give notice that you're denying those services. And what, do you, what do you make of the fact that the employers didn't sign the amendments to the plan? That the employee didn't sign the amendments or the employer insured didn't sign the amendments? Employer insured. Okay. Um, I mean, the rules state that if you don't sign the amendments, then the amendments become... Um, but it also says that it, it's not a waiver of any rights to contest it later. Yeah, the waiver refers to once they get the bill, that they can dispute specific items in the bill as excessive or unreasonable. And that's what the waiver. And wouldn't it be excessive and unreasonable not to pay for stuff that's not related to the work injury? Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't object to that. They got the bill and they didn't say that. And but did they pay for it? They didn't pay for it, no. Well, shouldn't that be some kind of a signal? How long is the QRC supposed to wait before they get paid? Don't they, doesn't the QRC have other options like filing their own notice or filing a notice of termination of certain services? I mean, they have options themselves to take this to the administrative judge to get it resolved if they have some inclination that they're not going to be paid, right? If they have an inclination. So, and mm -hmm. so getting a notice that we're not paying for ankle injuries and not getting paid for bills and not having the amendment signed is not an indication that the employer is not going to pay for things? Oh, the failure to sign an amendment is not an indication. They almost never get signed. Um, I mean, that's for a variety of reasons. Okay, so what about all the notices? The only notice was the email they sent in December 2016 that said that we're going to pay, we're going to continue to pay for the admitted ankle and not pay for anything else. And not pay for anything else. And then in November, there's a lawsuit basically filed before the administrative law judge where they're denying that they're going to provide this coverage. They never denied the rehab services, though. There was a claim petition filed. The claim petition alleges wage loss benefits, it alleges medical benefits, it alleges, it does not allege the vocational rehabilitation benefits. So your position is that the QRC here never had any notice that there might be a question about whether they were going to get paid for the services that they were providing. For the admitted ankle. And they never had formal notice for anything else. Um, the statute requires formal notice. And the formal... Well, let's say you're right. And that um, the QRC should be paid for services in connection with the admitted ankle. Wouldn't we then have to remand for the comp judge to determine, at least try to determine roughly, what percentage of the bill was for the admitted ankle and what percentage was not. I mean, see, your, your client, under your analysis, shouldn't get the full $13,000, should she? Well, it's about 8900 for the services before April 6, 2017. Okay. Um, the full 8900 uh, I uh, the, the notice has... To, I don't think the court has to remand to go back to determine which services are related to the admitted ankle and which ones aren't. Um, well, wait a minute. You just told me in response to a previous question, or maybe it was someone else, that um, when you're sitting at a medical appointment, some of the discussion was about the admitted injury, some of the discussion was about other things. <laughs> so um, there, there are some services that were provided not for the admitted injury, right? Right. 
But the Begul case says that those services are also paid because you cannot, you cannot separate them from the services provided to the admitted injury. And so all the services for the admitted and the non-admitted injuries are paid under that Begul decision. Um, that's why you don't have to go back and remand and determine which services are related and which ones aren't. Um, and in fact, we wouldn't be in this position if they had denied those services through a formal notice. Council, I want to go back to Halverson. Um, I, I don't get the argument that Halverson has anything to do with this case. And I want to read to you um, a line from the opinion by Justice Strauss. Our task in this appeal, excuse me, our task in this appeal is to identify what legal standard governs a request to terminate rehabilitation benefits awarded to an employee as part of a compensable workers' compensation injury. This employee doesn't have a work, compensable workers' compensation. The, the employee um, had a temporary condition that resolved. Doesn't that sentence just, Halverson's just irrelevant to this conversation? I don't think Halverson's irrelevant. Halverson dealt with the termination. Maybe it's a mistake to say it's irrelevant. I mean, there might be an argument by analogy, or there might be some useful, um, I mean, useful principles that you could articulate we should apply in other cases. It is probably an overstatement to say that it's irrelevant. But as a legal matter, there's no holding in that case that helps you here. Am I right or wrong about that? Um, I think you're wrong about that. A counsel was arguing that Halverson is distinguishable because Halverson dealt with a permanent injury. That's that's not what makes Halverson distinguishable. Halver no, I think her argument was Halverson is distinguishable because we had a qualified employee in Halverson, and here we don't. But in this case, we did have a qualified employee entitled to rehab. They had paid for services for almost a year. There was no dispute that the employee was a qualified employee entitled to rehab. They had been paying for QRC services. It was an admitted injury. And so... But he stopped being a qualified employee at some point, it, it appears once the injury resolved and certainly once the the comp judge said that that was the case so he was not unlike miss halverson who had uh, residual problems and was permanently injured that's not true for mr ewing right no it's not but but justice hudson he, the qrc can't make that determination about when the employee stops being uh or when the injury has resolved. We have to wait until a compensation judge makes that well, you decision. Know, it seems to me, though, that we rejected, we've rejected, we, the, the Court of Appeals, Workers' Comp Court of Appeals, has rejected that idea in several cases, CBON, or if I'm pronouncing that correctly, being one of them, that, that you have to wait. Because you, you, I saw, in reading some of these cases, there's this constant theme from QRCs that they have to continue to provide services until a court um, order or something, you know, court order typically, comp judge finds that the employee is, is not eligible. And several cases say, no, that, that's not the law. That's, or you do so at your own risk. Let me put it that way. The QRC provides services at her own risk once there's a determination made that those services may not be related. And that determination had not been made until the rehab request was filed. Um, so do you, do you, is your argument then that the, the comp court cannot make a determination retroactive like they did in this instance because I mean that doesn't make any sense to me if a court can make a determination retroactive then what does that do to your argument my argument is they can't make a retroactive determination with regards to payment of QRC services that is my argument you can't retroactively say that QRC services weren't reasonable, necessary, and related because then a QRC is providing services in the dark. They're providing services at their own risk, and you are never, ever going to get a QRC to provide any sort of services if they believe that all of their services may, may end up being not payable. A QRC is not going to provide, a private QRC is not going to provide services uh, to an injured worker if they believe that they'll never get paid for those services. QRC is not going to provide services. In this case, litigation was 18 months or whatever. Um, for 18 months, if they believe that those services may retroactively be determined that they weren't reasonable or necessary. And frankly, a QRC can't afford to provide services for 18 months if they're not getting paid for those services. Counsel, um, you made, I think you made an argument at the WCCA that you should be paid and the QRC should be paid until good cause was determined that he's no longer injured. Wouldn't that be at the administrative conference in January of 2017 instead of 
the date of the rehab request by the company? It could have been at that conference in January of 2017, but that conference in January of 2017 was to discontinue the employee's wage loss benefits. And technically, at that time, a compensation judge has jurisdiction to expand the issues upon agreement of the parties to include the discontinuance of rehab benefits. For whatever reason, the parties didn't expand the issues then. And but, but wasn't that an indication that the employee was no longer injured if he wasn't entitled to uh, wage loss? Well, that, there was notice given to the employee that his, uh, that his benefits may no longer be related, but there was no notice given to the QRC that her services were not going to be paid anymore or that her services were not related. And so it's a separate requirement, and as Justice Hudson was mentioning earlier, can't you file those at the same time? You can. Um, and in fact, that's common practice. When I was a defense attorney, we often filed the notice of intent to discontinue benefits, discontinuing the employee's benefits, and the rehab request at the same time to uh, request that the QRC's benefits be terminated. That's standard so, practice for this. Counsel, can I? I'm sorry, go ahead, Justice I, I'm still trying to get a sense of what it is you, you think your client was not on notice of. Maybe it was that this, there were some continuing services that she was providing with respect to the ankle injury. But, but when I read, you know, your client's progress reports, there's just so many entries. You know, on 11, November 7, 2016, adjuster emailed this QRC that pool therapy is approved, reported that she will not be approving any more testing or referrals pending their IME. The adjuster replied the insurer would not provide further approval on anything until after the IME. Um, you go to December 31st, um, just repeated references to there's a dispute, there's a dispute, there's a dispute. Um, she said, the adjuster says, there's no claim that the employee had any brain injury related to the work injury. She noted they will not reimburse for any future medical appointments on riding, you know. Help me, where does that fit in terms of what your client knew and how reasonable it was for her to Sure. I think, and my light's on, but I, to answer your question, I think she had um, notice or informal notice, I guess you could call it, via the email or via her rehab reports that those consequential conditions or what, what were later determined to be unrelated conditions um, were being disputed. But she cannot make the determination to continue or not continue to, well, to stop providing services because she's not the fact finder. Um, she, by rule, is required to only follow the direction of the treating doctor. That's under, I believe, 5220.1801. Um, you, you cannot follow the um, recommendations of an IME doctor if you're a QRC. You have to follow the recommendations of the treating physician. And you cannot suspend services or withdraw from services altogether based on just the report from the independent medical examiner. Medical examiner, You have to wait until there's a determination made either by a specialist at the Department of Labor and Industry or by a compensation judge um, in order to make that decision to suspend services. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Erbaum, you have 15 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Erbaum, what about that, that, that she could not have stopped? I mean, despite all of the emails and the, some from you, other, from lots of people, from the insurer, that she had to uh, wait until there was some determination, either from a comp judge or from someone, because she was following um, the reports and the recommendations of the treating physicians. What, What's your response to that? Um, just, it's not true. Um, this employee's QRC had so many emails Wait a from me that, that, that she can't withdraw or that she can't and stop providing services. And what's your authority so for that? So 5220.0510 subpart 7A states that a qualified rehabilitation consultant um, shall file a plan closure report as specified in subpart 7 and if she decides to withdraw as the qualified rehabilitation consultant 
after the insurer has provided written notice to the employee, the employee's attorney, the qualified rehabilitation consultant is denying further liability for the injury for which rehabilitation services are being provided. So as soon as she gets the first email saying, we're not paying for all of this nonsense, which she, I, I, can't, I can't tell you, I, I must have sent 14 emails on this case stating, stop going to medical appointments for the concussion. There's no way a concussion is related to an ankle sprain. Stop going to medical appointments for neuropsych testing. There's no way that's related to an ankle strain sprain. If you look through Exhibit M, there are so many emails from both myself and the claims adjuster telling this QRC to stop it. I, I can't tell you how much notice she had. But once she gets notice that we're not paying for this stuff and the fact that we told her we weren't paying her bills after September, she could have withdrawn, and there is an entire unit called the Department of Labor and Industry Vocational Rehabilitation Consultant Division that provides injured workers or allegedly injured workers whose claims are subject to a dispute free QRC services. So this QRC was not an indentured servant. She could have withdrawn at any time. Anytime she felt that she did not want to take on the risk of the dispute anymore, she had the complete right to close her plan down and refer the employee to Dolly VRU, which is Let really me. how it's supposed to go on a disputed case. Okay, that's or she can choose to continue to provide the services at her own peril. But I'm going to just okay. read something Let from the Parker you, though, case. Mr. Obama. Let okay. me stop you before you do that. How does the, it does seem though that there is still some dispute about whether or not she had notice about the continued ankle treatment therapy. Help me, I, I know you've addressed that at least once with one of my yeah. colleagues, but remind, well, help I me mean, again you, with that. You because can, it goes to Justice Littlehog's question about, you know, are we, do we need to remand to figure out what you paid for and agreed to pay for it with respect to just the ankle injury now? Okay, no, because the ankle injury resolved in April of 2016, and it was done. And as a result, we're but done. And my client paid. There in here that said that, that he was approved for pool therapy or some other kind of therapy right. after that date. Yeah, but sometimes we do approve stuff, and then we go to a hearing, and we say, okay, we paid for a year of stuff under a mistake of factor law. Because now we have a defense that says that... Um, our injury actually resolved all this time ago. And, and Minnesota Statute 176.221, Subdivision 1, allows a later denial despite payment or despite approval. And that happens all the time. So here, once the ankle injury is done in April 2016, there's no need to have some long drawn-out determination regarding whether the services provided between September and April uh, what was related to the ankle and what wasn't. First of all, I would assert none of it was related to the ankle because if you look at my reply brief, specifically um, pages seven and eight, I outline all of the medical appointments that happened during that time. And I think you'll all agree with me when you look at the what actually happened between September and April, you're going to find out it had nothing to do with an orthopedic ankle strain sprain at all. Um, so Counsel, I have a question. So if we, uh, let's say we disagree with you and we, we say that there had to be this formal notice provided. If I heard opposing counsel correctly, um, he said that that you would essentially, your employer would be on the hook for any and all of those rehab services, whether or not they were related to the injury of the ankle. Is that accurate? I, I don't see how under our jurisprudence. I mean, our, our, our entire Work Comp Act and every decision we have requires that in order for benefits to be awarded against an employer and insurer, they have to be one, causally related to an injury, and two, reasonable and necessary treatment. I mean, otherwise... There is you're, a way to splice those out. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you're going to just start, you're going to just award benefits when the employee's injury is resolved. I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, I, I just don't even understand how that's possible. What about the footnote in um, the Sebian case that says... The Sebian case, the workers' compensation case, it says if the employer, there's an exception if the employer has expressly authorized such services. You know about, they said, 
we don't find any authority to impose liability on an employer for payment of charges, you know, except for if you've expressly authorized services. And didn't you expressly authorize services here for the ankle, for the ankle? Um, well, we did authorize some limited services that we paid for between April and September. Once September came along, we indicated we're not paying for any services unless they're specifically related to the ankle. And then as I stated, if you look at the records from September to April 2017, you're going to see the reason why we didn't pay those services is because they were not related to the ankle. Well, counsel, I just accepted your invitation to look at those, okay. those notations in yeah. your reply brief. Yes. And it does look like some of them do relate to the left ankle. For example, December 2nd of 2016, the notes say that the employee is weaning out of his left ankle boot, and December 30th, it says it's still, he's still in his boot. Right. Doesn't, let me finish. Yep, go ahead. Doesn't that suggest that some of the treatment um, in connection with those medical visits had to do with the left ankle, which was the admitted injury. No, you'll see that all of that treatment, I think, was with pretty pri primarily um, Dr. Hess at United Pain Center. No, this is talking but, about Dr. Molnar. Yep, and, and Dr. Molnar both. And when you look at Dr. Molnar's chart notes, um, you're going to see that each chart note is about 12 pages long, and she does mention every possible um, body part. But I think if you look at all of those chart notes, you're going to see that when they were talking about the ankle boot and um, also his chronic ankle pain, they were referring to the CRPS condition, which was a denied claim. They were no longer talking about the ankle strain sprain. So I think you really have to look at that because the treatment that was being provided in those notes, when you look at the bulk of the chart note, you're going to see it all refers to the denied claim. What about January 12, 2017, the podiatrist um, referring to the inability to put weight on the left ankle. Yep. And by I that mean, we don't, point, we don't do, Ms. Yep. Irvine, we don't do facts here. Yep. But it looks to me like there are there are facts that you can infer. He was still having a problem with his left ankle, which was the admitted injury. No, but the problem with looking at it that way is that the employee was complaining of a condition called complex regional pain syndrome in the left ankle, and so if you look at the notes through that time. All of the left ankle pain during that time was not due to an ankle strain sprain, but was due to the CRPS condition, which Dr. Hess was treating him for, which we had always denied. So there was really no true left ankle treatment during that time. So just, can I, just to clarify, sure. what you denied is everything other than treatment for a left ankle sprain, right. not injury to left ankle. Right. Well, because he well, no, claimed, I, yes, because he claimed to... left ankle symptoms. Uh, he claimed his whole left I, extremity. So but just, okay. ankle strain sprain is what we admitted. And other ankle injuries were not admitted. Uh, I would say other uh, left lower extremity complaints. Sure. Okay. Because, I mean, the CRPS, he alleged, went through his whole body, you know, including the whole left lower extremity. Um, but I, I think... The, the key to this case is realizing that the employer and insurer here weren't coming into court asking for some kind of a plan modification like was done in Halverson. We're just saying we don't owe the benefits because our injury was temporary and resolved and or we don't owe the benefits because we denied primary liability and won. We won on both those issue, issues. The injury was temporary and resolved and we won that there was no primary liability for the other 14 body parts. Once that um, determination has been made, all of the additional determination regarding process and procedure for plan modification is irrelevant because none of those statutes apply once an injury is resolved. You, the Coutts decision is very instructive. Once a work injury is done, an employee is no longer entitled to any benefits whatsoever. Now, I, I don't understand where this argument is um, that the QRC has some independent derivative right because that's just plain nonsense. Um, chapter 176 only applies if you have an injured worker. All of these benefits are employee benefits. An employee has the right to a qualified rehabilitation consultant. 
a, a QRC doesn't have any independent right to just haul off and do services for someone who's not an injured worker. So to, there, there is nothing in Chapter 176 that states that a QRC has some a, a derivative right. There is, there is nothing that says that, period. Um, and it, it, all of the benefits under the Work Compact only apply if you have an employee first, an employee, and second, an injured employee. And a QRC cannot just come in and assert that she has some right to claim a benefit. The, the QRC has no benefits. Only an injured worker has benefits. A QRC has certain responsibilities and certain requirements that she has to follow. I'll give her that. And in this case, I think she, she didn't uh, follow all of them. But she has no independent right to assert a claim um, that the employee doesn't even have. Can you, um, um, can you tell me the statute under which, or rule under which you get the free QRC if there's a, a disputed claim? Um, so, so essentially, um, that is 5220.0510, subpart 7A, capital A. And it just says any, the vocational rehabilitation unit established under Minnesota statute section 176.104. So you'd look at that rule and then that statute. There's a, an entire vocational rehabilitation unit for, for disputed claims. And I wanna end with the Parker case, which I've cited in my brief, but I think it's very instructive because it says, um, the basic question in this matter is what action a QRC may take and expect to be paid for when there is a dispute between the employee and the employer over whether rehabilitation services should be continued at all. The employer has argued the QRC should simply do nothing without specific authorization from the adjuster until there has been a hearing and an order. However, adoption of that approach would give employers too much control over the rehabilitation process. The, um, uh, the employer, the employers, um, they, they instead say we want to adopt the employee's theory instead. That is, a QRC who continues to provide rehabilitation services during the pendency of a dispute over rehabilitation eligibility runs the risk of non-payment in the event the employer prevails at the eventual hearing on the merits of the employee's entitlement to benefits. If the employee prevails, all appropriate services are compensable. Either way, the employer is only responsible for payment of those rehabilitation services to which the employee was otherwise entitled under Minnesota Statute 176.102. So that's exactly what we have here, a situation where the employee's claim ended in April of 2016, all benefits that are in dispute in this case occurred after the date of the temporary injury. There's no entitlement to those services. The QRC knew all along anything was in a dispute other than the ankle. The services she provided were for CRPS and the denied claims. She knew this and had been repeatedly told this. And to award benefits after a date that a compensation judge has declared there to be no injury is a very slippery slope. You will have a lot of other people trying to have their hand out for money after a judge says that an injury has resolved if you allow this. Um, and in this case specifically, the employer and insurer prevailed on both the primary denial of liability and the temporary injury defense, and that's where the claim needs to end. Thank, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll